Longtime defense contractor Raytheon won in court when it sued the government over intellectual property. What the company thought was IP, the government assumed was merely technical data it could share with anyone. With what happened and why it's important, we turn to Smith Pactor McWhorter partner Zach Prince. Mr. Prince, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this case, because you know intellectual property comes up a lot in federal contracts when there is development work. And so what happened here? This is an interesting case, because usually what you're getting is arguments between the government contractors about what type of license the government gets. This case, you actually are arguing about whether the government gets any license at all, because it's a question of whether it qualifies as technical data under the DFARS clauses. So in this case, Raytheon had a contract to service the Patriot missiles. It was an engineering services contract. Part of that had to provide spare parts. Since 2014, the government's been insisting that Raytheon provide a vendor list for those parts, which it was doing every quarter. Raytheon marked the list as proprietary. The government demanded Raytheon remove those markings because under the DFARS, if it is technical data, you've got specified types of markings you can provide, none of which are proprietary markings per se. In the government's view, these lists were technical data. The license the government would get would then be an unlimited license, which means the government could do anything it wants with it, uh, or it would be a government purpose rights license, which is pretty similar. The government can do anything it wants short of actually commercializing it. But if you're a contractor, what that means is the government can hand your information to your competitors in order to stand up competition. Government's motivation then was to perhaps take this technical data and then start competing those spare parts? Yeah, it seems pretty likely that what the government wanted to do was to use this, include it in an RFP, and hand it out to Raytheon's competitors. So how did it end up in court? Did the government go ahead and just remove those markings arbitrarily, and then Raytheon sued? How did they get to the point of where it was a case? Well, in in the government's view, it wasn't arbitrary, but that's about right. Raytheon included the markings. The government said, absolutely not, take these off and resubmit it. And Raytheon did that and then submitted a dispute under the CDA. So that's how it got here. Right. And so this dispute would not be like a protest that would go to the GAO, but would go directly to which court? It would go either to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals or to the Court of Federal Claims. And there are advantages of each of the forums, but I think Raytheon made the right decision of bringing this to the Court of Federal Claims. All right. And what happened in court? What did the two sides argue? So Raytheon was arguing that at bottom, this is not technical data. The DFARS defines technical data pretty broadly kind of a self-referential definition. Technical data is any recorded information of a scientific or technical nature, but it specifically is not data incidental to contract administration. Raytheon said that this was not technical data. This wasn't of a technical nature. It didn't identify any characteristics of the parts, didn't describe the parts, it didn't have drawings or include any way for anybody to do anything with this information of a technical or scientific nature. It was just a list of its manufacturers. So how could the government then use that with a simple list of manufacturers? I had said earlier maybe they wanted to compete the parts, but the only way they could do that with simple list of manufacturers is to simply go to those manufacturers directly and avoid the pass-through through Raytheon? No, I think what the government wanted to do was to allow another party the possibility of standing in Raytheon's shoes and already having a identified supply chain. These are the parties you would go to to buy the spares. And I guess the obvious question is, if the government was so interested in this, why not just buy them directly from those companies and cut out Raytheon? Well, that's right. Without (laughs) making the argument about what type of information they were being given. I think the government didn't do that because of the administrative burden. The government often will have 
a party acting in, in the prime's capacity and it can go out and do all these procurements the government would you know have to go through the whole administrative process to set up right so it's almost would become like a sourcing program that they just didn't want to undertake that's exactly right we're speaking with Zach Prince. He's a partner at Smith Pactor McWhorter. And so then what did Raytheon argue and how do they prevail here? Raytheon just pointed to the straightforward technical definition of the DFARS, that this isn't technical data. And the court agreed. Now, the definition of the DFARS is broad, but based on the plain dictionary definition, this information wasn't, to quote the court, inherently or essentially technical. It just didn't have any functional, physical or performance characteristics of the components. So the DFARS, just like the ASPR used to, excludes from the definition of technical data, administration data, you know, stuff that you need in order to perform a contract, but that isn't actually used to do the technical parts of the contract. And because of that, the court found Raytheon won. It had an interest in protecting this data and the government's argument that it would somehow hinder competition, the court dismissed as irrelevant. And just a side question here, suppose the information that Raytheon provided was the specification, say, a connector. I don't know, I'm just making this up. That's a certain diameter, a certain number of pins, certain materials used so that it meets mill specifications and so on. That information, then the government could have shopped around to manufacturers and therefore would have been possibly violating the IP of those small manufacturers. Is that a possibility? It depends on the circumstance. So likely a lot of this IP, uh, you know, the drawings, the specs, is stuff the government paid for. And because the government paid for it, it doesn't own the IP, but it likely has a really broad license right. And then, yeah, it could have gone around and shopped that. If this manufacturer list had part of it, you know, the list of manufacturers, and then next to that, it had detailed specs, Raytheon probably could have submitted two different versions of this. One that had unlimited rights to the government, where Raytheon might have redacted the manufacturer's names and identities, and then one that was subject to Raytheon's proprietary rights that was unredacted. So what are the lessons learned here? What should contractors do to protect themselves, and what should the government do to make sure it gets the flexibility it sometimes feels it needs? So working in reverse order, the, the government should be more careful on the front end to actually negotiate contract rights that it thinks it needs. And you're seeing some of that now with some fairly aggressive procurement policies in trying to replace the Black Hawk helicopters. Those procurements, government's insisting on very broad rights so that later it's not relying on the OEM for spare parts. Of course, industry is pushing back because the government's demanding rights and data that contractors paid for. But if the government wanted to procure an unlimited right to use this data, even if it wasn't technical, the government could have done that on the front end and they would have paid for it but they could have negotiated it. From the contractor standpoint, I think contractors just need to not be timid in asserting their rights. You know, the government pushes back in this area fairly frequently and not always from the perspective of an informed party. I can't tell you the number of times I've been on a call with a contracting officer where they talk about the government owning IP and the government essentially never owns IP with some rare exceptions. And don't assume that the government knows what it's talking about. Be respectful, of course, and recognize that you, know, you have to perform as a government directs, subject to dispute, but don't be hesitant to dispute when the government's pushing too far. So the contracting officers should maybe enlist some help from the general counsel because COs tend to not be attorneys. Contracting officer representatives are usually not attorneys either. So you got to bring in those legal eagles one way or another. That's exactly right. Zach Prince is a partner at Smith Pactor McWhorter. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. 
We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. 
And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 